Thanks for listening to the Pro Video Podcast. Weekly insights into everything video. Proudly presented by worldpodcast.com. Here's the host, Blair Walker. Hi everybody and welcome to the Pro Video Podcast. This week we're going to be talking about visual effects, compositing, CG, with Patrick Junghans. We, we just say Junghans in Germany Junghans. And, and here when I'm here it's just Junghans. <laughs> it's just the easiest. We'll just be going by Patrick for the rest of the show. Because <laughs> I, will, I will say it in my uh, normal Kiwi slangy way. I prefer that. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. We met recently and uh, you came into the TBW office and you were meeting with uh, the head producer, Jody Hari, and I and showing us your work and I was just blown away about the quality of what you produced. But also it was really cool because you'd already been working on some work with TBWA for some of our very heavy CG yeah. content in recent times. It was a piece we're going to start with, which was ANZ B2B. Just to give a bit of context about that work, you uh, have your own company and that's Spectre. Yeah. So you um, have can build out your own team, but you also do a lot of work for Flying Fish and Fish and Clips in New Zealand, mm-hmm. which also has a VFX shop called Mandy, and yeah. you do a lot of work with them. Yeah, that's right. I came from post-production originally in my career and back then it was very much the old type of post-production house mm-hmm. where you would have your your flame compositor artist color grading suite whether it was resolve or base light and then you'd have 3d suites but they're all really um, <clears throat> on staff people yeah so it sounds like a really different sort of relationship that you've got do you mind telling everybody and explaining the relationship and how it works yeah, I mean, because I come, I come from the same sort of background. Like I started, my my whole professional career started as a flame op as well. So I used to work at Condor, which was like an international international company, you know, with a couple of offices all over the Europe. And um, you know, that's that's sort of how I got you know born into this world. Yeah. And um, which was which was amazing because you really see exactly how everything is done, and you see a lot of behind the scenes. And back then. Um, so you're originally from Germany. Yes. Yeah. But back then, no matter where you were, it was only really the flame suites that could do it and the time needed. Like they were like the big iron boxes that could, you could throw anything at them and they could do it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like, the, especially for, for the, for what the kind of type of work that we were doing, which was, you know, in advertising is client heavy and you have a lot of interaction that you need to have with the, with the clients yeah. and, you know, you want to have the director sitting there and be able to tell you like, this is what I need and you get it done and see it straight away in the edit. And you have like, you know, that's flame and inferno were basically the workhorses that we had at Condor yeah. at that point. And, you know, my colleague was doing the inferno, which is back then it was this giant box. You could actually walk into that box if it, if it wasn't full of, <laughs> of circuits <laughs> yeah, crazy, and processors. Yeah. And then my flame was, it looked like a futuristic helmet. It was an SGI machine back then. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was it was a good time. It's the first time that I got introduced to nodal compositing as well. My background was After Effects, so you know, just a brand new world, and it was really good. I sort of like stepped into it from the side because I started out as a, as an intern, and I was just lucky enough that their flame up was about to move on to you know greener pastures for 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 him, and. Um, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And they said, like, you know, do you want to learn? And I'm like, okay. And then they just gave me these stacks of, of books. It was just two boxes full of manuals. And yeah. 
had to, you know, I sat there for a couple of months, you know, and just learn it. Also with the help of my colleague, just every time I had a question, just, you know, walk all over to the office and um, ask him, like, well, how do I do this? Yeah, different time before uh, the prolification of online training. Oh, what a change. Yeah. Like, what a change. Because that, that knowledge that you have nowadays, is just it wasn't available at that point, you know, like not, mm. not, not to that degree. Because, I mean, I grew up with no tutorials, no, no tutorials. Yeah. But they were, you know, in its in, in their infancy as well. Yeah. So a lot of um I remember a lot of flame artists were on <coughs> the email email threads that mm -hmm. um Mike Seymour and the others had were heavily yeah. involved with that later became FX Guide. Yeah. And then FX PhD. But yeah. yeah, it was back in the day where there were just email chains yeah. where you try and get on an email list to get some sort of help. Yeah, and we had we had um, I forgot what the magazine was, but it, I think they're still around. It's just it's this um, VFX heavy magazine. Was that um, Cine? C Cine? Uh, yeah, something with Cine. Yeah, I'm thinking Cineform, Cinefix. Yeah, Cinefix, and it was yeah. just sort of like a like a like a Bible that would just show up on your doorstep, and you'd like, you know you just sift through it and just find any sort of morsel of information as to like yeah. how they did things and how you could replicate that on a smaller scale, and um, It was um, exciting times, you know. It was really, really fun to do. So, how does that contrast um, with the model that you're working in now? Well, I mean, it all it all came back because I wanted to scale back. You know, just you know, we we moved here ten years ago now, and we started a family. You know, I've got two kids, and it was a a matter of just trying to be a bit more present as well because. Um, You know, our industry, it's a lot of late nights, a lot of yeah. late, late hours and, you know, just being able to, you know, tuck them into bed each night and then I can just, you know, go off and work again. Ed was sort of like born out of that, um, out of that craving of, of being able to be there. Very much um, <coughs> something that's happened in the industry, whether it's motion or VFX in the last 10 years, is a want to have some freedom with your own um, daily routine and times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, it is, it is already like um, a lot of freedom in general because, you know, you, have, you tend to have flexible hours sometimes, you know, depending on where you work. You know, you, you work late, but then you can make it up um, at, a, at a different place. But um, I just wanted to be a bit more in control of, of the kind of, um, you know, timetable that I have. Yeah. And um, nice to not have to um, always be fighting that morning commute or that afternoon <laughs> trying to, like, get home in time. Like, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Finding that balance of just being there. Yeah, that's right. And no one's, no one's looking at you funny being like, you know, I mean, as long as you put the work hours in, it shouldn't matter. Yeah. But, I mean, there's still these remnants of, you know, you have a like nine to five and you're present from nine to five. But you see more and more companies adopting a different sort of approach. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the output that matters and not really like your presence. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think um, empowering people <coughs> by giving them freedom, it's really easy to see if people are performing or not. Yeah. But um, in a way of really retaining people, I think that companies will need to have a look at um, being a bit more flexible. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a real transition. I, I know that uh, for me, it's quite hard to work from home if um, I'm working on something kind of heavy mm -hmm. just because I don't have the processing power. And looking at the work, and we're going to have a lot of links to Patrick's work today. 
and really encourage everybody to click through. We'll be talking about some specifically. But when you look at this work, it is really high-end visual effects, and you're going to need some pretty booty power. So you must you must have some pretty sweet machines specced up at home, I'd say. Yeah, it's, it's evolved over time. I mean, when I when I first came here, I was um, I brought a lot of gear with me and I had a bit of a, a, a moderate render farm that I, you know, sort of used on and off because I was I was an employee at first at Toybox for for a while and, you know, sort of like in that in that same vein as um, you know, being at Condor Toybox is just this um, great self-contained powerhouse that can just, you know, output everything from A to B. Yeah. Uh, a to Z. <laughs> from from start to finish. From start really. to finish, exactly. Having so. all those suites, whether it's grading or yeah. um, motion design graphic you've got real departments that fill out all yeah. those responsibilities yeah just like you know everyone everyone's working together to 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 achieve like a great result in the yeah. end and that's where post-production facilities still um maybe you don't have the giant ones that we once did yeah. um but they're all still very necessary for those projects that have high demands and really quick turnaround times yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and um <clears throat> Going back to processing power, it just sort of developed. I mean, I had my I had my render farm, and then at some point a couple of years ago, that, that got decommissioned with the with the rise of cloud rendering. Yeah. Um. You know, primarily being um, like Zinc being my favorite out mm-hmm. of all because you know it was the first one that really integrated extremely well with Maya, yeah. and it was just a matter of you know opening up your dialog box, sending it out to render, and it would just show up exactly where it had to be. Yeah. And you would pay a bit of a premium for it but it was worth the uh, you know it was less hassle and and even maintaining and troubleshooting you know that yeah. time and the energy it's exactly. not just the money value of the hardware yeah but just the the headaches and the overhead of like trying to uh, maintain a render farm yourself yeah and then especially in the summer summertime yeah. you know, <laughs> that you don't have to cool anything down yeah you don't have to worry about in winter the, it's great for heating <coughs> oh <laughs> you you wouldn't imagine how warm it gets next to it but it was it was quite fun it was it probably was my most expensive heater that i've ever had in, yeah. the, in the winter time <laughs> so a lot of the guests that i have on uh from the motion industry and a lot of them are using cinema 4d which yeah. i use currently mm-hmm. uh which is great for motion design but i originally started out doing 3D in Maya. Well, actually, Electric Image was my first 3D software. I don't know. Did you hear of that one way back? No, Electric Image? No, what was your very first 3D software? It was Maya. I actually started in Maya. I think it was Maya, I want to say Maya 4.0. Uh, I'm going to age myself. I was 2.0. Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, look, you've got seniority in that one. But we we were, um, I, I got introduced to it uh, during my studies cool and it was again i just i just chanced to it was either 3ds max or maya yeah and i think i might have you know heard someone say like maya is you know more widely used in in the kind of field that i was which visual effects (coughs) it's had such a strong hold for decades yeah because it was the same when i was coming through because there was a lot of people learning it to go and work at weta yeah but uh, 3D Studio Max was very heavy in the gaming industry. Yeah. Yeah. I um, When I was studying, if you're in the degree project, you had to use Electric Image for 3D. Right. It was only if you're doing a post-grad or a master's that okay. you could use the Maya machines. And they were the SGI boxes. Yeah. The, um, oh, what were they? The 
I can't remember the model, but you you remember those ones that sat on the desk in the like that black blue slick little SGI box? My SGI box was a green one that uh. looked like a space helmet. <laughs> 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 but don't ask me for the model. I remember quite. Um, I was doing post grad, and the other person doing three D in post grad was Adrian Lawrence, who's yeah. a creative director at Future Deluxe, mm-hmm. and he's over in Sydney setting up. But I remember that um, I would be working during the night mm-hmm. and have six machines rendering for myself. Mm-hmm. And then we would swap. He'd come in in the morning. I'd go home and sleep and he'd have the suite for the rest of the day. So we're like, <laughs> <laughs> and then looking back, you know, we didn't have any um, ambient occlusion. The ray tracing yeah. it was like pretty rudimentary. It's Yeah. It's funny thinking back to uh, what we thought was just so photorealistic, <laughs> but looks like crap today. Yeah, it's 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 really it fascinates me looking back at everything that you do. It's it it can even just be two years, and you look back at it, yeah. and you're like, "This looks like um, crap." <laughs> keep keep it PG. And it just it looks it looks terrible. Oftentimes, and you're like, "Well, I could have done better," but you know, at the end of the day. You couldn't have done better because you weren't there yet. You didn't have the same sort of eyes yeah. looking at it, you know. But um, oh, uh, the technology advances so so much. If yeah. we're looking back a few years ago, uh, real time rendering is just seems to get better and better every few months now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm learning Unreal now as well. Unreal, it's just, nice. It's, yeah, it's, it's it's pretty it's pretty impressive. Yeah, totally. So, what sort of render engines are you using in Maya? Um, so. V-Ray, Arnold, and Redshift, and Redshift sort of being the primary sort of workhorse at the moment. Cool. And um, but keeping everything still, like just keeping up with everything else, because there's you know sort of, I'm uh, I'm always thinking horses for courses. So whatever yeah. whatever software package you need to get the job done, and it's in, in in sort of your best abilities, you know, just use that. There's I'm, I'm pretty um, whatever's needed for the yeah, job. Yeah. yeah. That's it's pretty pretty easy as. Awesome. So, how long have you um, had Spectre set up? Where it's your company and you're basically more of a small boutique studio. Is that how <coughs> you sort of see yourself? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even go as far as calling it a studio because at the end of the day, it's just about um, providing VFX and CGI services to yeah. to places that either you know, need an extra hand or that maybe like agencies that wouldn't necessarily um, have their in-house team and they want to do in-house projects that are looking a bit more, a bit more flash, yeah. just sort of like, um, you know, present a team, like a cohesive unit of, 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 of like just a workforce that can, you know, you can just guns for hire yeah. more, more or less. And that's, that's how we work. That's how we work with, with Mandy, for instance, as well, because Mandy in itself, you know, like they, they can handle everything from, from, from start to finish as well. You know, like they can grade, they can edit, they can, you know, output everything. And they just don't have the, the, the 3d side, um, yet, you know, and, and they might have in the future and then, you know, I'll, I'll move on to, to other pastures, but until then, well, I'm, I'm, I'm happily going to keep working with them, which is, <laughs> you know, it would be but, sad. It would be sad if it stops, but because they're a really cool bunch of people. Awesome. The work that you have done really makes such an impact. So there's a specific one that I'm thinking of, which is um, <coughs> a B2B story, which is about business to business mm-hmm. is the normal term for B2B. But yeah. for this one, it's literally about a B. And yeah. it's a fully CG B that on the first shot, 
right up there in frame and then taking the audience through the story really of how ANZ works with its customers in a partnership with all yeah. the different places in the bee industry. Mm-hmm. The CG is center stage in that piece and it's so photorealistic, but the the animation, the anticipation and the movements, yeah. the subtleness that you've brought into that work, the work that you did with Flying Fish and Mandy on that, and um, that was directed by uh, Petra, wasn't it? Yeah, Petra. Petra Sibilich. And uh, the Mandy VFX um, producer was Steen Beck. Mm-hmm. We'll have a link to this piece in the show notes. Check it out. How do you go about the process of working with the director, the visual effects production team, uh, creatives, the agency, and the clients? You know, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of thoughts in that process. So is the director your main port of call in, in that sort of workflow? Well, I like I like to meet both with, um, I mean, we're working with Petra and Stan, you know, at the same time because you got you to have both, right? You have you have to have the, the creative vision and you have to have people that rein everyone in and, you know, yeah. manage everything. And you want to you make everyone happy as well. So you just gotta listen to all the side, and it's it's nice. I, I really like you know as 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 cool as it is to work remote on on everything, you know it's it's just really important for me to have these face to face meetings because you know you're looking at the same storyboard, you're looking at the same panel at the same time, and you talk about the same things, and you sort yeah. of can can you know riff here and there, and you just you know. It's it's, just, it's it's interesting when you're in a room with someone, just seeing, looking at the things that aren't being said verbally. Yes, yeah. yes, it's so important. I mean, you know, it's already bad enough um, on the phone. You know, when you someone might say something or someone might just react in a way that no one sees, and you're like, you sort of adapt. Maybe like a, something that you might have said, saying you know. Uh, if you propose a certain approach to CG, which you know you can you can go about one thing um, in in five different ways, you know, and get yeah. five different results, and um, you know sometimes you just have to try to find, you know, who wants to have what and find out what they what they're after, and um, that can be you know challenging, but it's also it's also exciting because you know it's um, yeah you bring you bring things together and try to make everyone happy, which is yeah, I don't know it's. <laughs> it's that, for me that's exciting. Like just you know, when when you see people being you know glad that they 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 with what they received, you yeah. know, like um, they don't regret going with your services. Yeah, definitely, it's, it's nice. So this this piece in my mind is really about um, being um, photorealistic. Hmm. The B is uh, it looks like the real thing. The yeah. movements are real. How much reference are you looking at? How how you know for a few months there are you just thinking about bees in your sleep? Well, you yeah you definitely immerse yourself quite a bit in it. Um, my my advantage was that I always wanted to be a beekeeper. Um, nice. Well, not always. I mean, since since I came to New Zealand and I was a bit more aware of, um, we did some permaculture courses, but it's just you know let's not get off off track there. <laughs> but I wanted to become a beekeeper and just sort of like privately do that sort of stuff. So I had been, you know, into bees for a while. So it was just like, yes, that's a cool project. And but just like like any animator would, you know, like uh, or any three D artist should, it's just you look at tons of reference and you you know, you, you spend hours looking at documentaries and you just try to find the snippets that, you know, can be important. 
yeah. and you, you you develop an eye for certain things. You know, it's like the how how the fur, like how the how the fuzz of the bee reacts to certain lighting situations, how they how they move. You know, you learn and you learn a lot about them as well. You learn how they communicate with their movements, and uh, which you know you might not necessarily bring into it, but you have it in the back of your head, and, and mm. you, you know there are like certain things that they do that are on purpose and if you can sort of like bring that into it it's 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 quite nice and then you may have to sort of like get away from that you know like you you follow the rules just to break the rules afterwards yeah. because you want to also have this be a performance uh, yeah. at the end of the day you know you have you are sort of restrained by that by the timing of the shot you know you have your edit and um, you want to go forward and tell that story and then the bee becomes a character you can't just you know have it just be a a documentary yeah because you have 30 seconds to show what you want to show and in this piece that's the bee is really integrated so well because mm. um it is such a focus and even uh the opening shot there's a close focus on the bee that yeah. flies off into the distance so there's a rack focus there from the bee to the sign saying a b2b story yeah. by a and z must have been a lot of work on set for them to really nail that focus pulling as well to get you the plates that you needed to um, integrate that B and match those camera moves and things like that too. It it was a, a thing. I mean, like I wasn't I wasn't on set because I had a like a, a skeleton crew that was traveling. So Petra with her DOP and maybe someone else. I think it was just like you know um, they had a lot of locations to cover yes, across exactly. all so New they had, Zealand. Yeah, they had to travel. Quickly. They had to travel light and. You know, I, I prepared like a little VFX set for them with the uh, color charts and like these sort of very lightweight gray and chrome balls that yeah. you know I could use for for to build to rebuild the light off of that sort of like like um, HDRIs. Imitate. Yeah, no, we didn't. No. We didn't go as fancy as HDRIs. Just, just matching the lighting. Just matching yeah. the lighting from cool. from that, which was you know, um, luckily enough, it's if if your bee is like you know in the air, you have a bit of leeway as well. Yeah. You just try to make it look pleasing. In terms of the reactive focus, because we can play with that in the edit and with the timing, you know, like we we said, you know, just do a couple of different reactive focuses, different speeds. Mm -hmm. And then um, it was sort of like finding the right moment during the animation. I do pre-comps straight away with everything so I can propose timings as well. Yeah. And then, you know, show the director, okay, is this something that you would like? And then um, with with our review process, which which we're pretty big on just like, you know, get a lot of back and forth into the into the game so that no yeah. one ends up being surprised when you're like f f really far down the road and it's there's no time to to do any revisions. What you're creating has so many different um, layers of it. You have the model, mm -hmm. you have the rigging, the animation, the texturing, yeah. the shading. These are all the fundamentals of CG, <coughs> the lighting and the rendering. Mm -hmm. The animation, which is so critical to telling the story for it to feeling natural, but also just creating this asset as well. Yeah. What's the process and strategy in doing that? Is it a linear process or are you doing a few different things at the same time and, and building them up on top of each other? The B in particular, I have to say that it's um, it was a turbo squid model because of um, just budgeting reasons, you know. Cool. Yeah. Um, if we So the B itself, the, the asset that we found that was um, fitting our purposes, it had a model. It had shaders. It had. Uh, it was set up for Arnold as well. Oh, nice! It had uh, X Gen fur, 
everything was it had the rig it was a great rig as well so it was cool. a, it was it seemed like the perfect asset but as with everything on turbo squid you always end up you know having to maybe rebuild a bit of rebuild it. Yeah. things here and there so at the end of the day i had to get into the rig fix a couple of things there i had to fix the um the groom as well sort of like yeah. started from scratch because there were some really weird behaviors which you know there was a whole process with it, it just took weeks to actually contact them because they have it's just a marketplace at the end of the day yeah. so all you do is like you tell them and then they tell the creator of the asset and then it just goes back and forwards and like if they can't replicate that you're left with um just showing them um you just record your screen and you know that's that's what it was just showing them like it's not working can you fix it and and so what was the groom that was for the soft fuzz kind of part yeah, of it yeah yeah that's right so. which was really important on a key shot which was with the nati pro and that that's kind of halfway through the 30 second spot it's again in focus quite close to camera but it's heavily backlit so that yeah. light that's wrapping around you really see that detail in, yeah. the, in the soft fuzz yeah that's right yeah um, we actually decided to go get away from Arnold and and turn this into a Redshift B as well. I wonder so, how many projects end up like that. I think it is quite common, but it, ideally, ideally, you know, you plan that ahead of time. Yeah. And then you 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 know, but you know, but being able to understand and know different renderers just allows you that freedom to go yeah. change that call as you need. Constantly just feeling that deadline coming closer and yeah. closer, and that's not going to shift. Yeah, yeah, and and even mixing and matching renderers is so easy nowadays, yeah. you know, because it's just they used to be quite um, back when I was doing Mental Ray and and you know just the default Maya software renderer when you were putting two different renders on top of each other, you would get you know um, gaps and and outline issues and and things that wouldn't line up, and it's sort of it's gotten way better where yeah. to a point where unless you're working with something really fine like hair, for instance. Mm -hmm. It gets harder to mix and match, but if it's anything else, you're you're pretty sweet. And then you can always do deep rendering as well. Yeah, you know. Do um, you mind explaining to those that might not have heard of deep rendering what it is? Well, I came I came across deep rendering because of Weta, and I don't want to speak out of turn, but I think they might have even pioneered deep rendering. Yeah, and it's basically it's it's not it's not classical compositing anymore because you're you're including a depth data in your renders, and you just bring <clears throat> instead of doing uh, layers that go A over B, you just connect all the layers together, and the software uh, knows where to place them in depth, and then you can, for instance, just you know replace one element, and it'll yeah. it'll fit right in. It's a good way of thinking is if you had a smoke field or a fog volume that you yeah. have to put an object into that where um, it understands the um, basically the render at the pixel at each pixel but in a Z depth as well. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Cool. So, I mean, <clears throat> it, that, that can get quite heavy because, you know, depending on how much info you you render out into the depth buffer yeah or like say deep it's not a, it's not like a z depth channel it's actually um you know a whole process it can get quite heavy and if your pipeline isn't made for that yeah. it slows everything down to sort of like a like a halt um so yeah we we ended up changing all the shaders we changed we ended up modifying some of the textures because i didn't quite like <clears throat> 
the the you know the the, the pattern of the of the at the bum yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i wanted uh, of, of the abdomen of the bee i wanted that to look a bit different um doing the groom um doing the feathers and then just adjusting everything for redshift and and just sort of like make that make that work so but the the main bee asset was it's still that that original turbo squad asset with the same um um geo and the same rig and we just you know polished it in a, in a different way but back to your question um i mean when you create an asset like that you would first just look at tons of reference if it's a natural asset like a bee it's easy because you can yeah. find that if it's something like a, a 3d character that hasn't existed yet then you know you would naturally first do a whole concept design stage uh go through that go through a stage and have like someone come up with different um styles of a character or maybe the client has something in mind and there there are plenty of amazing artists out there that can you know you show them one style and they'll just create you know five characters that are just within the same vein and you just pick and choose or sometimes you just don't know what you're looking for and then again you know you go in that concept design um stage you sort of just try to find what everyone wants and there's like a um iterative process to it that just you know may take a day may take a couple of weeks you just you don't know that up front yeah and um, and then you just go you know straight into modeling and sculpting get some proper details into it and then once you have like the base model you can get your your rigor onto it and, and you know they can start working on this there's a lot of overlap it's it's quite linear but there's also a lot of overlap and sometimes you circle back it it can be quite organic um because you might actually uh have the rigger uh, do something where the 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 model needs to go back and change the topography of the yeah. of the geometry um you might have the rig and everything sorted and you give that to the animator and the animator will then inform you know the rigger that this needs to change or you know hey this deformation then goes back to the model or there's like it's 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 it, it can be quite organic yeah. you know or when you when you start adding the the groom you know like the groom can sort of misbehave as well when you're at the texturing and rendering stage yeah there's a lot of back and forth about the lighting mm -hmm. but then the materials and the textures that you're creating they they really do work hand in hand it's not like you can just do one and then sign it off to do the other yeah that's right i find i find texturing and shading and lighting is sort of like if if you have an artist that can do all of them you know like handle all of them understand how light works and you know what light does to your you know like how you have to set up your subsurface um textures you know like if you go with with your subdermal and epidermal and the intensity of each value that sort of like feeds back into the light intensity and and you know like how how light bounces around inside inside something and in, inside a volume um you know when they have a full understanding of of those steps you know you get you get better results yeah. instead of just handing something over and then they have to deal with that because sometimes you just you don't have that luxury if you get a if you get an asset uh, and and everything is sorted and then you just have to try to make it work with the light you sort of um you know if you can change the asset uh, if you're if you're not able to then your your end result may you know not be as good as it could be you know and then then also it goes it goes sort of like you you pay you pay the penalty forward as well because then the compositor that needs to deal with um with the end result um you know they might have extra work because i mean i always think we've 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 
departed from the days where we had to do everything in 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 layers you know we have we have renderers now that can get really close to photoreal results if you do it right yeah and um and all the compositor um you know some enjoy working with like lots of passes and you spit those out for them uh, some of them especially when they're when there's crunch time you know you just want to do a or b and then you know color correction and color grading on top and integration instead of trying to fight to make it look realistic you just want to sort of like do that final polish pass I mean, yeah. speak, speaking as a compositor <clears throat> a lot of a lot of the big studios would have their ways of working mm -hmm. um, whether they were working with passes or working yeah. with final output and exactly. just doing in VFX for television commercials um, short form work mm. is it really like there's no set way everyone's just doing it how they need to at the time depending on the project um, it can depend on the project and it can also depend on the compositor that you're working with so it yeah. always helps um to have an understanding of the compositing um, process, so when I <clears throat> when I do my renders, I pre-comp everything and I pre-comp everything to a standard that I would want to see it um, based on. Um, I mean, I work in Nuke um, nowadays. I don't work Flame anymore at all, and um, I do all my pre-comps in Nuke, and I know how to sort of like tickle tickle the best out of what I can sort of do in the time that I'm given. And so I can when I hand something over to a compositor and knowing what they want. You know, I can make their life easier as well. Yeah, and um, you know, things things have become easier on a technical technological level because of the renderers and because of the features that they give us. You know, I think I think Cryptomate is just a godsend nowadays. Yeah, yeah um, it's it's a big part of uh, the renderers that are coming out at the moment. Um, so much easier than all those. <laughs> all those setups for buffers and various <coughs> outputs. So, um, again, um, for somebody who might not have heard of CryptoMat, do you, mm -hmm. you want to just give a quick breakdown of what that is? So CryptoMat is, okay, so maybe let's backtrack. When you, when you have an asset such as a car, for instance, you know, like you can, you can take that apart into certain components. You have your, you have your chassis, you have your windows, you have your, your tires, you have your hubcaps. Now, a compositor might want to just affect the color correction on the, on the panels, you know, the, the, um, without having to roto um, any of those components. And, or they might just want to like, um, affect the tires to get the blacks right. So you give them ID mats. And these ID mats usually they used to take a lot of work depending on the complexity of your object. So if you have a transformer with uh, tons of individual parts that you want to control, you end up with with dozens and dozens of ID mats. And ID mats usually, you know, it's RGBA, and you sort of like propagate those, and you have several layers of those. And with CryptoMet, what they did is they they output what would look like a, a uh, also called a clown. A clown pass or a clown mat, which which some people call, which is like a multicolored, flat representation of whatever it is. It doesn't look anything like your render. It's just just flat colors that you would think you can just color pick. Um, but you have repetitive colors as well because you have only so many colors that you can you know yeah. grab. But they spit out additional um, additional information with that main pass. And then when you have that plugin enabled wherever you work, you can do it in Flame and After Effects in Photoshop and in Nuke. Um, you use your color picker and it just intelligently spits out that particular object 
and you get a, 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 a just a near perfect alpha mat and it, it takes into account your your z depth as well if you're rendering with motion blur or if you're rendering with in-camera depth uh like um defocus um it it does a really good job of keeping that um alive and un unless you go for like a really extreme color grade from you know red to green um it holds up really well and uh, you know awesome cheers for that and um <coughs> Yeah, After Effects has been one of the later compositing packages to finally get CryptoMat in it as well. Yeah. So I know a few people that have been upgrading just to be able to utilize that. So, um, yeah, it's always a little bit scary updating uh, any Adobe application. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I keep I keep my Adobe a bit limited. I do <laughs> I do Photoshop, Illustrator yeah. if I have to, and uh, After Effects. If I really, really have to, <laughs> not it's not a, not a knock on After Effects, but for the kind of work that I do, which is heavy know, compositing, he yeah. heavy compositing, I, I find After Effects doesn't suit my needs. Yeah, um, I can definitely understand that. But it's 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 a perfect package for for motion graphics, and I think I think a lot of studios still use After Effects for compositing. Yeah, but well, when the you price point for for Nuke, it's it's not a uh, cheap piece of software. Yeah, no, that's that's true. I just wanted to also just have a look at your showreel, and we have a link to this. The reason is that um, there's just so many great pieces in here, and I really like that you have two showreels available. One is just to sit there and take it in, and then you've got <coughs> a breakdown version of it as well with yeah. all the information of like what you've what you've done. So much easier when you've got this information on the screen. I really like the way that you've put your showreel together. The first one, so that first car that's jumping through yeah. in the night shot, down here you've got the um, the CG debris, rigid body dynamics. How much of the shot is full CG? So that is from Ashra's Eagle Dead, and it's season three. It's like that car that breaks through the ground because it was in, the, in, in a sort of like demonic underworld and you know they broke free from it the main shot is the uh, the first shot where it, it breaks out and there everything is cg so basically they they shot this live action plate which was then reprojected onto cg geometry after you know tracking the camera reprojecting everything and then you basically have this cg car which was this this main asset um um from the from the delta the you know ashes ashes main car um, because it had to do throughout the two seasons that I primarily worked on, it had to do so many different things that a real car couldn't have done. Yeah, they decided, okay, we need this as an asset that we can then propagate through all the episodes and and hopefully use it in the future. And then they used it also actively in in season three. Um, I'm I'm like thinking that this would have been quite a tricky track to nail down. It's quite a phonetic camera move in it. Yeah, so. So shot one has the CG car in it. So sh shot two cuts then into the live action car. So they had a car there here, yeah, which was um, you know jumping off a small ramp, and everything is pretty much everything is for uh, uh, live action, except for these um, um, stones, the debris that comes through, and some extra uh, volumetrics. I think that we uh, we added. Cool. Um, that camera track was almost exclusively exclusively done by hand because it was so chaotic. Yeah. Um, I ended up just sort of having to eyeball a lot and going back and forth and um, try to make everything stick. It wasn't a hundred percent 
there because there's a little bit of swimming when you really, 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 really look for it. But who does that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's at some point you get like a you, you reach the point of diminishing returns. Yeah. But the the previous shot that's where everything is CG and so there was. Um, Are you talking about the second shot? No, no. Like, so if if you oh, oh yeah. the very first shot as <clears> it's breaking through the ground. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a two shot sequence basically. Yeah. That goes hand in hand and. Um, you know, you have you have your CG car, you have you have that break through it, and then basically the whole process was to to time everything first. You know, you you sort of like block out um, the angles, you block out the timing, you block out um, the trajectory of the car. There were you know several iterations of you know how far away from the camera does it break out, what sort of what sort of arc does it fly through in the end. Is this sort of being planned in pre-production so that they get the plates right and the camera moves? No, no, not not, not in this case. No, wow. like there, it it depends on the shot. You know, like some shots you do um, blend certain things through and you give them previs. You know, which yeah. um, um, certain things really warrant previs, and it's it's fun to do as well. Yeah, and then everyone knows what they're working towards. This one was a, um, it didn't need it. Cool, I, I would say it didn't need it. And um, yeah, so we had we had once that was sort of locked down. You go into your simulation field because then you have to have the um, the ground break. So that's your, your first phase is like breaking up the ground, and that's your rigid body dynamics. Um, smash everything to bits <laughs> and make it look you know um, believable as much as you can. And then you you add this dust and smoke pass to um, you know hide everything because. <laughs> and no, then, and then crush crush everything down. <laughs> no, I, I mean you you just you need it. You know you have yeah you have your large scale rocks. You have your mid scale rocks. You have like extra particulates that you know like when when you break something, just, so much is going on. Where you know again, it's just like with animation. You need to you need to look at reference and see yeah. how things fall apart. And when you look at a landslide, for instance, you or or, or when when a house is being pulled um, or something collapses. The amount of dust that is generated and actually hides a lot of things. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> sometimes you, there there are certain shots where you work for for days and days to get all the little shatters um, of of like breaking everything and you know you're like oh man I don't like how this crack looks like you really get tunnel vision sometimes and then you add the 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 particulates and you add the like uh, the the dust pass and everything is gone. And yeah. everything that you thought was important is like, no, now we want to get the dust to look right. You know, like your your cracks don't matter because the cracks are not seen anymore. Yeah. And I then you bring everything together in comp, you know, make everything look as um, as believable as you can. Again, it's all, it's not always realism. It's for me, it's believability, you know, like if it mm. doesn't look like it could be true, then it, you know, what's the point? Yeah, uh, with CG... I can't remember which director, but I definitely remember watching an um, FX PhD class talking about compositing and lighting for CG. Mm-hmm. And the thought was, I'm not really interested in photorealistic because I'm I'm making cinematic imagery. Yeah. So, yes, it's got to be believable, but if you're making anything, you're crafting the light, you're crafting the set, you've yeah. got a vision of what it is, and it's it's about stylizing, it's about the look that you're trying to create. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it starts on set, right? 
if you have a scene where someone is talking to the camera, you don't just point it flat at them, you know, yeah. like you already set your camera um, with like a certain focal length, with a certain perspective. And then you start modeling the scene with lights that actually where the light itself also tells a story, you know, like you you highlight certain things. So it, it all starts right there. Um, and then you just, you know, you sort of like carry that on. And then, you know, once you integrate um, CG you have to do the same thing again you know like a you have to match whatever they did on the set and then the director might want to highlight certain parts within the cg and he might want to art direct certain elements of like whatever it is you're working on to to tell his side of the story or like to tell his vision yeah definitely a shot that i really love in your reel is um it is the CG head explosion. Mm. I think I think any kind of head explosions are interesting. <laughs> it's pretty pretty full on and intense. Do you mind breaking down what your role in this? What was on set as far as um, the different passes that you got to work with? Because you've got a character here, you can physically see that there is no head for a portion of the shot as well. Yeah. So you're getting some clean plates as well to sort of use for compositing as well as the talent on one of the plates? You always hope for clean plates. You know, sometimes when when you spend time on set and you see how pressed for time things can be, yeah. you know, you, you try not to be the annoying VFX supervisor. You try to, you know, maybe whisper in the, you know, go to the first AD and just talk to him because the director doesn't, doesn't need to talk to you because they have they have so much to to worry about um they don't need to like you know talk to you at that point so you you try to like just whisper into the ear of the first ad and you talk to the dop because you know like they can then you know channel things back if you get your live action plates and your clean plates you know you can be a happy chappy sometimes you just have to you know make your own clean plates and yeah. you know, clean everything up and you know stabilize footage paint things up in photoshop which is, you know, where, where Photoshop shines as well, like in the yeah. VFX um, pipeline. Pipeline, you know, you could you could do it in in Flame or in Ugon After Effects, but you know, or it's just a mix. It's just there's never only one approach, yeah. right? Like every shot is different. Every shot needs a different approach. I, I still remember when Content to Wear Phil came in after yeah. spending years of cloning <laughs> well they've they've got that in, in after effects now as oh, well right yeah but it's oh, i tried it a couple of times i was like well no i'm not going to use that apparently it's much faster now but it oh, was right. just it was unusable when i played with it yeah well yeah. I'm, I'm still i'm still on, on, on an old version you know, so. <laughs> i wouldn't upgrade for it <laughs> <laughs> yeah people don't like the creative cloud all that much sometimes oh i love after effects yeah. um i think it's yeah, it's what I use all the time. Yeah. But it it does have to do a lot of tasks and fill a lot of roles. So yeah. I'm using it. Um, the compositing aspect of what I've done in the past isn't really part of my role anymore. So mm. I'm definitely using it for motion design and, and um, yeah, for compositing motion. But like type animation and dealing with type, I don't know. It, there is no real alternative to After Effects. No, I've I've seen that, and they've had they had sort of like the the upper hand for for many years when yeah. they started adding those those animation presets for for type animation. It was really impressive seeing seeing yeah. that on YouTube and seeing what people actually do with it. And then you have all these amazing plugins from from trap code as well where yeah. you know you do you have element 3d 
That's yeah, cool. well, I, 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 I tried Element 3D for a bit, but I still just love Cinema 4D. It, I feel really at home in that, so yeah. I'd much rather be working in there and sending out. And, and they have Cinema 4D integration through Cineware as well, mm-hmm. but I still just want to render and then you know get as close in, in the render as I can. And yeah. then it's, it's a very similar <coughs> workflow to what you're describing, but it's just Cinema 4D to After Effects and um, having out the different um, ID mats, which in Cinema 4D are buffers. Yeah. And then just... Um, yeah, uh, finessing and polishing as needed in After Effects, but yeah, it's 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 a love hate relationship, I suppose. <laughs> well, isn't isn't every software though? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can complain about one software all you want, but there's no software that's perfect. No, you, know? you just sort of you know you learn to deal with the shortcomings and you just um, leverage all the all the things that it does bring to your to your work. But yeah, going back to that head explosion. It ended up being um, a lot of a lot of live action elements in there because yeah. um, we thought we thought at first, and that was so that was uh, done through cause and effects. Like the the credit goes there. I'm not sure it was if it was Greg or Paul who did the compositing. Um, in cause and effects, they they were responsible for a lot of the VFX for um, Ash versus Evil Dead yeah, and, were, and other big shows produced exactly. in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, they were, they were. So I, I met Greg and um, Paul during Spartacus, yeah, and I, I came on board with them as a new compositor there, and and brought some of my, um, you know, it, Spartacus was very um, comp heavy, you know, yeah. like we 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 may have you know added bits and pieces th- here and there in terms of three D, but that wasn't really our our role when when we were working there is that just because it's more grounded in the real world compared to say ash no i wouldn't necessarily say though because i think there was a there was a lot of potential for 3d in Spartacus. it just sometimes things are not feasible either 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 feasible to do or they already have other vendors that they uh that the production you know um has experience with that you know have been signed on from the beginning. So they're getting that, those shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there wasn't. I, I, I think that was just more comp heavy and more live action. And there was tons of matte paintings. And they had right. they had some really beautiful matte paintings, and um, those matte paintings were then also like fed back into Nuke to then you know add depth to them. There was like, there was some really really complicated um, setups, and seeing those you know being created by. Um, other new artists that you know had skill set that I was like, wow, you know, yeah. I I really got into the three D aspect of Nuke during Spartacus, which I hadn't really um, touched uh, as much, and it was uh, it's it's very powerful, you know, when you do reprojections and then you have um, you just sort of boost boost whatever whatever you can do with uh, with Nuke's tools. Um, they used a lot of um, live action blood. Uh, splatters and 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 they shot everything and you had like a lot of live action elements where if i think if the time and um uh it's always a matter of time and money right so um, if if you can you know why not do it 3d well because it costs a lot of money right yeah it's just when you have when you have someone who's who gets like a sword through their face um sometimes you reach the limit with with 2d um, 2D elements because they don't they don't track in a way that an actual wound would be gushing blood. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
Yeah. So um, for that kind of effect, you'd be moving into fluid simulations if if you had the time and budget to yes. really um, get a full 3D representation of yes. what would be happening. Yeah. I mean, like at, at the end of the day, it's um, most things are a healthy balance between live action elements and 3D elements um, because there's there's also a certain again you. We are we are working with uh, we're not working at Weta where we can spend you know one or two months on one single shot you know it's a it's a very fast paced sort of um, environment when you work on something yeah. as Spartacus or or Ash vs Evil Dead where you know you have a set set amount of time you have a set amount of budget and you just try to get the the best result within those limitations you know and you just work your ass off sorry you <laughs> <laughs> you work your butt off to to really you know get that sorted and um yeah greg and paul like we had so many so many late nights on on both shots uh, on both shows where you know you go you go a bit um crazy sometimes <laughs> you you start you start doing really funny things when it's three o'clock in the morning yeah um so yeah they so they were doing they were doing all of um all of the Ash vs Evil Dead shots that I have on my reel, that's yeah. when I was working for them uh, in, in that sort of like lead role and, and sort of supervising um, yeah. CG. And something that you said before, which I really want to um, reiterate, is that there are so many different vendors that are working on any of these shows. And it's, 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 um, it's something that really surprised me. Is um, In New Zealand, these shows were feeding quite a few different companies around Auckland. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah that's right. I mean, like, um, um, Flux was doing a lot of stuff, um, a lot of 3 stuff for Ash Receiver Dead as well. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the other vendors. Um, I don't know all the vendors that were working on that. That was really... Um, I think if we just have the caveat, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, like going going back to that shot that we talked about, yeah, um, the idea at first was to have have it a lot more complex. You know, we were we were have like uh, we we're gonna have a it's it's a mascot whose whose head explodes for for any you know people that need to know what this is. Um, so the, the I think they were throwing a um, a paint can and then shooting that and that exploded the head. Um, we were thinking, okay, this is going to involve um, soft body dynamics for flesh and skin, and you know, some some rigid body dynamics for skulls, and you know, um, inside the head you have all these soft bits as well. You have your tongue, you have your your meat, you have your brain, and we were thinking, okay, there's going to be a lot of stuff happening, and then you have the blood that that comes with it. You have your your um, uh, fluid sims and it ended up being a much simpler approach just because of the the, the aforementioned constraints and um, it just ended up in terms of 3d it i think it was just a rigid body dynamic yeah. um, sort of simulation where it was a scanned head um, that was pre-fractured um, you know have a internal force it just explodes everything have your your hallway model so that it can interact and collide with that and then we had um um, some contact, like whenever the pieces were hitting the ground, we were um, rendering out these um, um, sort of mats where it slides across the ground and then leaves a bit of a trail. Leaves a bit of a trail, and yeah. everything else was just um, you know 
comp work, like, you know, just um, artisanal comp work where <laughs> they added um, blood mist and, um, you know, flames and fire and, and sparks. Sparks mm. and just, um, yeah. you know, get remove the head as well because you have to see the inside of the head. Um, yeah, I think there was a, there were many hours spent on that to make it look as good as it looks now. I um I love the shot of the house falling down. Oh, that was destruction fun. sim. That's um that's sixteen seconds into your show reel. It's like it's just so realistic and so intense with that with the fire sims. And yeah, yeah. So that was <clears throat> so that's that that cabin that was um, actually introduced in the first um, Evil Dead movie and has been revisited a couple of times. And they went back to that cabin. And um, of course, they didn't want to destroy that. If I think it was the original cabin, like uh, unless they actually rebuilt it for that show, but um, the cabin had to basically um, collapse in on itself because it was um, on fire. And um, to do that practically would mean losing losing the asset and losing any chance of having to do reshoots. Uh, and quite hard to control as well. It's to hard get, to control. To get it looking how you want. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So there, there are these sort of art direction limitations that you that you have when you do things, you know, live action. You just yeah. get what you get. And then someone has to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we were provided with... Um, we, we were provided with photos and I think we ended up doing photogrammetry of the cabin and then rebuilding it from scratch. So, um, and because we knew we had to um, basically collapse it, we, um, or I in that case, um, when I built it, I built the framework, I built the interior, I built interior panels as well to get that depth and then the, the exterior and uh, <clears throat> Um, try to reproject um, as much of the original textures as possible. So we used um, Mari for that, which is another you know amazing tool for for texture painting. And um, basically, then um, that was done in Maya with fracture effects, and yeah. it was a you know a pretty pretty complex setup in the end. The the panels were end cloth, um, right? So we had the the underlying collapse of the cabin, and then added the end cloth. Quite, dynamics. quite, quite rigid. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, like a little bit of bend, but just yeah. you know, and and there's some behaviors that you know, sort of like some stickiness that you didn't really control, but it's just happy accidents that you often get with that as well. Do you sort of uh, prep it for the destruction sim in a way of like breaking something at a key point to sort of help allow it to break in so it's sort of flowing it's, it's so hard to art direct it fully you can't control every aspect but yeah. are you sort of trying to manipulate a little bit to get a little bit more yeah you yeah you sort of like you start you start pretty rough and you try to get an idea of like you know where do you want it to start and you know you know um with the with the cabin the first the first points were because the cabin is also supposed to go into the ground we were trying to do it from the ground up and there's uh, I, I started collapsing the porch and I was sort of like working my way up to the rest so first I was doing all the panels and I had you know cracks running through and you know sort of like getting sucked into the ground and you sort of like explore and and sort of just always build on top and you yeah. get you go finer and finer. You say like, okay, I like I like what's happening on this side, but here I want this board to break into more splinters. And then 
um, if you do it in Houdini or any other software that actually uh, uh, also with fracture effects, you can then um, pre-fracture things and you can yeah. sort of like art direct, okay, this is where it needs to break and, and you can you know, have a lot of creative control of it. And then you, you add these forces, you know, like sometimes it's just you have your glue constraints that you either just let go or you have a combination of glue constraints that then um, have a, a push modifier that, you know, sort of like pushes things inwards or like things right. outwards where it's more like a like a small detonation like you would also do uh, on a live action set. You have like little little charges that might do something and you you sort of go, go in the same sort of... Um, you emulate real life as well because yeah. um, you know you have it is a physically based simulation, so that's sort of your your framework. That's cool, and yeah, that's just you just you just sort of like go more and more and more and more, and just it just sort of um, evolves. And um, the only smoke sims and um, fire sims were actually, um, I think, the roof in the end and right. the chimney. And again, it's like there was a lot of a lot of comp work that happened at the end, like um, all these all these um, cloudy sort of like smoke bits were just um, live action elements that were you know really well placed and well integrated. Um, they were sort of like once I saw what happened during comp, I could also place lights to emulate the the emissive fire. Yeah. And make those flicker, and then feed that back to the to the compositors. Um, so that when they're comping the fire and the smoke with the CG <coughs> destruction, it's um, it's pretty much contact lighting, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, you know, like you go you go back and forth and try to make it look as as nice as possible. Awesome. Well, there's so many great pieces in this reel, and we'll have a link. Everyone should check it out. And now it's time for the pro video packs. First up is uh, the pro video pick, which could be anything that you'd like. What would be your pro video pick? I was trying to come up with a, a, a mantra of like sort of what what, what I do in, in life. You know, I was lo- I was yeah. looking I was actually just looking through all these past podcasts and seeing like, well, what do other people say? I was <laughs> like, what do I want to tell the world? <laughs> um, yeah, I said appreciate the simple things. You know, stay humble and keep learning, which is just. Yeah what what I try to do because um you know both the wife and I we're trying to always be aware of the things that we do have you know be aware of other people that don't have things and you know try to be I can't say what I want to say (laughs) (laughs) don't be a c-word you know in general just you know just be happy with what you have sort of you know like appreciate what you have in life and and be be thankful and, and you know just try to be a nice person and um, yeah, don't be a, don't be braggadocious, you know. Yeah. Don't be one of those people, and you know, just you never stop learning. That's the one. That's the one thing that I like to um, keep in mind because you you never you're never as good as um, you think you are because there's always someone who's better yeah. at what you're doing, and so you can just you know keep learning and you know improve yourself and improve your skill set and awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, so following, what are you? Who are you following, or what are you following? It could be online, it could be real life. Well, I follow a couple of of people, but it's it's usually just a mix of things. I I I, uh, I have a couple of um, sort of like um, um, feeds that I get from ArtStation. That's yeah. a, that's a great uh, great website for people that do their put their personal work on there. 
Um, I really like I really like Pinterest. I've come to I've only discovered Pinterest for myself. I think last year because I was researching things. Yeah, and I needed to look for references. I was like I was amazed by how many things you can find there. So I get I got regular updates now that sort of tie into that. Yeah, so I can see stuff there. Um, and it's great. I think for you having reference to be able to put things in quite specific boards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or even just, you know, you, you type in, you know, little cute monster and, and you find really cool stuff or you And you then the rabbit hole gets longer yeah, and deeper. You just you just you just <laughs> spend there an hour and then you end up, you know, you go to Cthulhu and uh you end up, you know, looking at um birthday cakes. <laughs> 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 and um you know, I never found out do you do you call it Behance or Behance or how do you spell that Behance. website? How do we say it? I say Behance. Yeah, I I don't know. It's Behance Behance. So yeah. that website tomato, is good as well. Tomato. If, to look at to look at professional work, you know, like to yeah. look at what people do and the kind of stuff that's sort of like out there in our industry. Cool. And then just I get a ton, I look at a ton of um, breakdown videos on on Vimeo on YouTube for yeah. things it's sort of like I, I I love seeing those how things are done deconstruct everything that you see cool man excellent alright so inspirational video do you have a video that you'd like to share with everybody yeah there's the, the only thing that I could think of because I mean everything is can be inspirational but the one thing that always stuck with me was this um, lady who was she had a TED talk and it was um, you know she had all this this data from people on their bed uh, deathbeds and um it really it's the one thing that really stuck with me you know that the regrets that people have once they're in their final hours and, and the final days and i tried to keep that in mind you know like not to work you know i love work right so i'm i, I was i've always been extremely lucky to to fall into my field because it was my passion yeah you know i started with the the camcorder of my dad and it just sort of like developed from there and i was just always lucky enough to find the right place at the right time to just keep doing what I do. So I'm a bit of a workaholic, like I just sort of never stop. Um, which when you have a, when you have, you you know, you have an office, you know, in your own home, it can be quite tough because you, you might just, you want to push and you want to polish and you're like, oh, I'm not quite happy with what this looks like. So you just want to add a bit more to it. Because just, it's like a personal pride sort of thing as well. Yeah. Um, so, but as they say, you know, like work is not everything. And, yeah. um, that's what a lot of people say, you know, like, I wish I wouldn't have worked this hard. So I tried to keep that in mind, you know, like try to appreciate what's right next to you, like in front of you, like your family, you know, like yeah. your kids, because your kids, they don't, they don't, your kids don't care about how much money you bring home. Your kids, you know, they're happy with you just being there. You know, yeah. that's, that's all that matters to them when they're, when they're young. Yeah. When they're teenagers and they want to have their iPhone, then they might care, care about that. <laughs> but, um, those are, I think the formative years are when you need to be present and yeah. yeah. Awesome. That's really great. So sort of we'll have the link in for that video. So check it out, everyone, uh, following you. So where can everybody follow you online? So I'm not a very public person. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do have a Vimeo page with uh, with selected work, and I just started an Instagram account where the whole idea is to you know take the shots that I have in my showreels and just you know sort of like unedited, sort of like a bit longer, 
you know, you, you can't show someone a, f- a 10 minute show reel, they sort of get bored. But if they want to see a certain shot in its entirety, like the the collapsing of that cabin, you know, like that yeah. sort of like from, from, from start to finish. And over time, I want to put a bit more or some, some breakdown videos there as well, cool. just to sort of like show some behind the scenes, um, some magic. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, we'll have those links in the show notes, everyone. So check it out. And uh, final question, who would you like to see on the show in the future? Well, I mean, what interests me at the moment is just to hear from, from to hear, keep hearing from people in the industry. But at the moment, because I because I run my own little outfit now, I'm really always interested in in, in uh, people that do their own thing. You know, like shop owners. Like when when you were talking to, again, I forgot the name. The other Dan, yeah, the other uh, Dan. Yeah, that, that Dan, was Dan Brown. There was a previous episode with Dan McKay and Dan Brown, yeah. and you used to work with Dan McKay at Toybox. Yeah, it's always so interesting to see, you know, like what they what they go through, like what they went through, how they how they set up their shop. I'm part of some some business hubs, and it's always interesting to hear from other companies as well, like what what they go through, even though it has nothing to do with um, with your field. Um, I always find that quite fascinating as well, like the struggles that they have, like you know. I don't have staff. Um, I, I I have freelancers that I work with, but even to hear from other people that deal with staff, yeah, like oh, I don't want to deal with staff ever. <laughs> like a lot of places, you need to have freelancers available to keep it keep yeah. it running because you need to be able to expand when bigger projects and jobs come in. Yeah. It just it just sometimes seems like a headache for you know. A, a, not a knock on staff it's just like from a business point of view there's so much to think about you know like yeah. you have you have your payroll you have um um you know you have to worry about the the sick pay holiday pay and just like the whole scheduling of staff and and, and whatnot um i don't think i'm ready to to worry about that kind of stuff yet so yeah. when you when you work with freelancers sort of like are you available yes do you want to work with us on this one yeah and it's sort of like um yeah because it's not. It's not my forte. Well, fair enough. It's like uh, suddenly something that you're really passionate about, having to take on those responsibilities that aren't you're not interested in. That could really crush the enjoyment that you're getting from what you were wanting to do. Um, yeah, running. Yeah, running your own business. The amount of hats that you suddenly have to wear. Yeah, uh, it's it's different. It's 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 it's. Um, just just doing just being your artist and just you know just worrying about the stuff that you have to do versus like i need to start budgeting i need to actually like keep these people now in check so like okay like how long have you been working on this well we don't have budget for another day like can you get it done tonight yeah like those sort of those sort of things and you know it's exciting in a way but it's also it can be very stressful when you when you you know do those sort of um, tasks that you know you weren't you weren't looking for yeah no it's good to it's good to understand the reality versus the um rosy polish everybody sort of glosses over <laughs> of like oh, i have my own business it's wonderful <laughs> like yeah. there's a there's a reality to it yeah yeah awesome thank you again so much for being on the show yeah thanks for having me it was awesome uh, it's been fun and thank you everybody for listening if you would like to go to itunes and rate and review the show that would help a lot so appreciate that if you want to jump into the slack there'll be a link for that as well there's a slack group for everybody to um, catch up and chat apart from that everyone have a great week and we'll catch you next time all right bye